Welcome to This Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Brad Hoylman. Brad, how are you? Hey, well, thanks for having me on. You are my representative. You are also running for Manhattan Borough President. I believe you're also my neighbor, and I think we've probably passed each other in Washington Square Park. Where do you live? I'm on Greenwich Avenue, so and I go there every single day, especially during the pandemic. And today it's raining, as you know, and I'll go there. I always pick up a little bit of litter because it's a lot of litter there. Yeah. And since a lot of listeners probably don't know you that well, I'm going to read a bit of your bio from your page, if that's okay, just to read you in. Sure. So elected to the state Senate in 2012, you chair the state Senate Judiciary Committee. You represent our 27th state Senate district, which covers lower Manhattan and midtown Manhattan. Uh, You've championed a wide range of issues such as housing, transportation, public education, environmental conservation, and seniors, passed hundreds of bills. Sorry, I'm going off script here, but this is a very exciting season that I've had a couple mayoral candidates, uh, city council members. It seems really exciting in New York politics right now. Am I reading that right from your perspective as well? Definitely. It's it's a a rebirth on, on numerous levels. It's a rebirth you know, as we battle our way out of COVID, of course, and it's the spring. So you feel that on the streets when you're campaigning. And then you have a whole new political class being born and a new mayor and a new borough president, new district attorney, and, you know, scores of new city council members. So it's a really exciting time because the city is going to chart a new course I think it's one of hopefulness, but also one of concern, given, you know, what we've all been through over the last year and a half. You've been in it since, I mean, 2012 is when you started in Senate, but you've been in it for a while. I mean, you've seen a lot from the inside. I have. I I think my, my Senate career is definitely part of it. Nine years in the Senate and really getting a front row seat on politics in in Albany, whether it's the machinations of the Republicans controlling the Senate or the breakaway group called the Independent Democratic Conference, or the fact that over the last two and a half years, the Democrats finally regained control after the better part of a hundred years. It's been amazing. Okay. Amazing. I mean, how it must be very liberating. And I think Trump had something to do with that. And, and in reaction to him? I think that's right. I think it, it was a culminating moment for progressives when Trump was elected. It also brought to focus the fact that we had in our own ranks of the Democratic Party a breakaway group of senators who had formed an alliance with the Republicans and arguably facilitated Trump's agenda here in New York State. I say arguably because the measures that were passed under this alliance were kind of half-baked Democratic ideas or half-baked Republican ideas. They weren't fully progressive or fully conservative. And I think we could have done a lot more had we been a united Democratic Party. But that's water under the bridge now. And we are a united Democratic conference under the leadership of Andrea Stewart-Cousins, and we've done everything from passing and codifying uh, Roe v. Wade and the Reproductive Health Act to finally extending human rights protections to transgender New Yorkers, to creating a fund for excluded workers to the tune of $2.1 billion, which for the first time will 
provide benefits and to individuals who uh, receive none during the pandemic because they are undocumented. So it's been a really gratifying change of course in Albany. And it actually has motivated me because I've been, uh, and I'm grateful to have been on the front lines of so many of these causes to bring that work here in the city uh, at this critical juncture and in the future of, of, you know, our neighborhoods. My favorite city in the world. My favorite neighborhood in the world. We're, we're really lucky. We're really lucky to live in the village. I mean, I talk to my friends and, you know, they are, you know, can't believe I have so many subway trains uh, <laughs> within a few blocks or their favorite restaurants or the Whitney Museum or the High Line. It's almost an embarrassment of riches, which also motivates me because I know that there are so many neighborhoods in Manhattan that don't get the funding they deserve, that don't have the city services that they need, that don't have the arts and cultural opportunities or great schools. Equity is certainly part of why I'm running to make sure that every kid growing up in Manhattan and really the city has the same opportunities as my 10-year-old and three-year-old daughters do. I want to ask, I want to go in two directions here. And if we only get to one, so be it. One of them is your vision for what to bring to Manhattan and to, to expand on what you're just talking about. And the other is in when you were describing your time so far, I can't help but hear a lot of passion. And I hear, I don't hear self-aggrandizement. I hear passion for service, passion for uh, civility, uh, a civic duty, maybe. And I wonder if you could share either one of those or both of those. Thank you. You know, I think that humility is certainly the way to proceed on a public stage because so many other people have done this job before, probably better than you have, and have taken a lot more risks. Like I often think that I'm on the shoulders of LGBTQ elected officials like Deborah Glick, who was the first LGBTQ person elected to the state legislature. That was a big deal. And we kind of forget about her history making or state Senator Tom Duane, who was the first gay man elected to the state Senate. I was the second. Or Christine Quinn, who was our speaker and, and our council member here in the neighborhood and played, you know, one of the first citywide roles as a openly queer woman. So yeah, I, I feel like, you know, whatever I managed to do is almost a drop in the bucket compared to what others, including, you know, great leaders who were incredibly trailblazers, incredible trailblazers for their own communities before me. But the passion that I feel about this job comes from taking on big challenges and being able to get ideas across the finish line and in the process, building coalitions to get that done, reaching out to interest groups, connecting with various entities and, and individuals. It's kind of like a, a big puzzle piece, getting a bill across the finish line. But it's also, I think, I hope, indicative of what I'll do as borough president, having that passion for progress, wanting to help individuals and solving a problem, public policy problem. Some of them incredibly 
vexing and others, you know, very commonsensical. One of the issues that I'm most proud having worked on in my Senate career is something called the Child Victims Act, which is a bill now signed into law that allows the adult survivors of child sexual abuse to file claims against their abusers in civil court or the institutions like churches, yeshivas, schools that may have harbored or protected those individuals. And the reason it's so important is that young people up until you know, two years ago, if they were sexually abused by, say, their priest, their rabbi, their coach, a family member, they only had until the age of 23 to file a civil or criminal claim in most cases. And if you think about it, Joshua, what 23-year-old has the wherewithal yeah. to find a lawyer, to come to grips with their the fact that they've had their, their innocence stolen by someone who they trust, like a family member. To go public with, for that to become public knowledge, risking, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Taking that, taking on someone who is generally speaking, or an institution that is generally speaking so powerful. I, I just, it's unthinkable that a 23-year-old could do that. So we created this window, a look-back window, it's framed as where those adults now, after having dealt with their trauma, can reopen a civil case and seek redress, at least have their day in court against the against their their abuser. And over five thousand of these cases have been filed in the state of New York. Not a single false claim has been uh, filed, as far as we know, at this stage. And it's just been so remarkably moving to be part of that survivor story, to really relate with someone who has been locked out of justice and to play a small role in them having that chance to hopefully reform their, you know, the, the memory of their childhood and reclaim what was lost to some probably monstrous individual is, you know, one of the highlights for certain of my career and really does energize me and make it clear to me that as a public official, you can do great things uh, on behalf of individuals or groups of people if you build a coalition and fight to make it happen. So I'm, I'm inspired by these survivors who came forward and actually moved this bill through the assembly after over a decade of being turned away by the previous Senate leadership. So it, re it really is kind of my little lesson that I'd like to keep close to my heart as a motivating factor for being in this business, changing lives for the better. I'm hearing that you started off uh, speaking about humility and other great people in whose footsteps you're following or on, who, on whose shoulders you're standing. And if I read you right, that you anticipate that more to come. I mean, you, you sound, I see a bit of gray in your hair, but still a bit young for a politician, if, if, I'm, if I'm not saying it too off. And that uh, you have a vision for what's to come. I'm not sure if you have specifics or just knowing that there are, there's a lot of conflict right now. There's a lot of struggle. People are trying to figure things out. I mean, we're going through a lot of changes and uh, there's no shortage of things that could be done. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, look, 
my idea for this office is to double down on the notion that communities and particularly neighborhoods know best what they should look like, what development should occur in them, what neighborhood character and preservation means, how to deal with those vexing issues like homelessness and things ranging from empty storefronts to traffic congestion and pedestrian safety. I really want to maximize the role of local community boards, which is one of the borough president's um, main contact points and organizing features to make a better Manhattan because the pressure on our borough is going to be tremendous once the economy starts revving up and it already is. There are going to be arguments that development and, you know, business creation should trump everything else. And that can't be the case and shouldn't be because neighborhoods matter. Small businesses are key. We want to create jobs, but we want to make certain that those who have been excluded, particularly low-income folks and people of color, have a chance. And that's one of the reasons why I created a program around legalized cannabis. And I want the borough president's office to play a role in helping those individuals who want to seek licenses to start businesses around the legal cannabis industry have a leg up to do so because they've been the object of the war on drugs and the unfair marijuana laws that we've now acknowledge. And they should get a shot at this new industry. And I have one of my plans is to make the borough president's office a one-stop shop for uh, entrepreneurs who want to get into the into legal weed and start a business. You're reminding me of when I was out in California last time, which is two and a half years ago. Took the train out there and just staying with a friend and his, uh, I think it was grandmother, it was like, I had to take me to ride somewhere. She's like, on the way home, she's like, oh, we got to stop at a dispensary and buy some some weed. And I was, I just kept saying, it's so crazy to me that you, it's just like a natural thing. Like a grandmother goes in and they just kept saying, Josh, you have to get over it. It's not like prohibition ended a while, prohibition of alcohol ended a while ago. And you don't feel like, oh, it's crazy that you have alcohol. And you don't have to feel crazy that, that people are buying cannabis. And yeah. I'm way behind on this. Like it, it just still feels to me like I had a hard time like grandmother buying cannabis was still weird for me. Yeah. And that like Schwarzenegger is like, it's a leaf. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the, both of us having lived, you know, living near Washington Square Park. It's and, there. Yeah. You know, seeing the kind of, you know, the treatment of cannabis by law enforcement, we've kind of witnessed it over the last couple of decades. It'll be really amazing to know that our law enforcement is going to be spending more time and energy and money on more worthwhile endeavors uh, than, you know, busting fifty hundred dollar uh, you know, pot sales in Washington Square Park. I want to bring up a couple issues that for me as a sustainability guy are important. And I'm not going to say that these I don't know. You're the politician. You got to figure out what level of importance they play in balance with everything else. But I picked up a piece of litter every day since 2017. And the pandemic has just shot the litter through the roof. It's, I mean, people are getting takeout all the time. 
And my frame of looking at it, and it's not just, I mean, there's like, a, litter is, is one part of a lot of polluting activity. But I look at it, you know, almost 20 years ago, we banned indoor smoking. And everybody said, if we ban cigarettes in bars, we're going to lose business and people are going to go across the river to New Jersey because they won't have a cigarette when they have a, a drink after work. And two or three years later, New Jersey had to ban cigarettes because people were coming from there to Manhattan because it was better business to not have smoke. And I look at Times Square and other car-free zones that before they were car-free, businesses said, we have to have cars because that's what brings people into our stores. And I don't think there's a business in Times Square that would want the cars back like they were before. And the other big one is styrofoam that they projected. This is going to put all, all these restaurants out of business if we don't have styrofoam. And all these things look like, you know, before they did it, people thought it would, it would hurt business and it helped business. And I don't know anyone who wants to go back to cigarettes in bars and coming back home and your clothes all yeah. smell like that. And I think that the same thing would apply to bottled water and all the single use packaging, whether plastic or otherwise, that today it's raining, but any other day in Washington Square Park or anywhere in Manhattan, the trash cans are overflowing. And once they overflow, once a piece of litter is anywhere, everyone's like, okay, then I'll put litter out. And, and it just degrades. I think that there's a case to be a, a strong business case that to disallow single-use packaging. And I think that it would improve business. And I think that in a couple of years, people look back and say, why didn't we do that sooner? All right. I'm in complete agreement. We just passed a ban on single-use toiletry items for major chain hotels, basically tiny shampoo bottles, you know, which are so wasteful. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't agree more with you about cars and styrofoam and the notion that it doesn't hurt commerce. Are you, you know, there's a very good chance that it helps it. The reason though, I think that you hear those arguments, you hear them from the industry, you know, you hear from them, you got to be wise to <laughs> these types of arguments proffered by organizations like the American Chemical mm -hmm. Council, which is a lobbying group that goes both to City Hall and to, to Albany, the state capital, on the behalf of big plastic. They lobbied against the plastic bag ban. What was their argument? Well, they didn't, of course, say it's because it's going to hurt our sales and cut into our revenue. That was really the reason. But mm -hmm. instead, they were smart enough to create a complete phony organization that was centered around seniors and public health because they said if people had to if plastic bags were banned or restricted, people would use them and uh, reuse them. And then they, they would be full of bacteria and New Yorkers would die. They literally used a public health argument. So, you know, it's, it's very cynical of, of trade organizations, but they often do resort to kind of histrionics. Uh, and one of those arguments is that it's, it's bad for business and, People won't go to Times Square if there are pedestrian plazas and creating smoke-free environments restricts, you know, the ability for people to enjoy themselves. And I've heard it all before. At the end of the day, most of the opposition to laws around sustainability are about money and about industries trying to protect their vested interests. Yeah, not just any money, but like, yeah, the vested interest money, they're... 
not the public's, not the, the wealth of nations. No, it's about, it's about a specific line of business and the impact on it. When we tried to ban plastic bags, we heard from the company that produces plastic bags that wrap around newspapers when they're in suburban and rural parts of the country. Uh, these plastic bags are used to wrap newspapers when they're tossed into someone's lawn. I mean, there's just so many different financial interests and involved in the plastic bag industry. It's remarkable that ultimately we overcame their opposition and actually passed the ban as we did, even though we rejected a city council ban under the Republicans and overruled their bill. But finally, when the Democrats took control, we embraced it. Well, when you're in office in Manhattan and this is and you want work on this, I'm your man. This is like there's passion and connections and things like that. I think we're going to look back at the amount of packaging and plastic and the disposable coffee cups the way we now look back at asbestos, you know, definitely has a purpose. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm trying to get a bill to ban uh, plastic straws through the legislature. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have a lot of advocacy support, even though it's a big issue nationwide. The advocates in Albany have not pushed at this juncture for a ban on plastic straws. They're doing so at the city level. I wish they'd be more vocal at the state level. We could, we could get it done, but it's going to take a year or so for them to to start raising the alarm around plastic straws at the state level. I'm sure we're going to get it done. But like you say, it'd be so much better if we got it done sooner rather than later and, and you know, save so much of that debris, you know, entering our, our waste stream. And something that matches, so let me know if I can help or how I, how I can. And something that matches that, and also you talked about equity and accessibility we have the most wonderful farmer's market in Union Square and also in Abington Square. It's a great place to campaign to. Great place to do lots of, yeah. My sister works with, um, what's it called? Uh, Grow NYC. So she's there a lot. But I also sometimes meet her when she's up in the Bronx and uh, upper Manhattan. And we, oh man, to get more access to farmer's markets all over is something else that I'd love to lend a hand on. And I hope that, I mean, in terms of health and economic benefit to the local region, it feels like something, and just building community. I don't know if you've met Tony Hillary from uh, Harlem Grown, who started a, a, across the street from a school. He took a, an old, got permission from, I think, the city to take an old empty lot that was filled with, you know, tires and, and washing machines that people had thrown out. And he turned it into this Harlem Grown. It's a wonderful community garden, but a farm because they produce edible stuff. And then later on, he got down the block, this whole hydroponic system and in a neighborhood where there's like no place where you can buy broccoli near there and tons of places where you can buy fried, whatever, you know, fast stuff, junk. And the school, all the kids do it, the neighborhood, and he, and he won't sell it. He, it's only giving it away. So if you go up there and visit, they're like, take some chard. And it's inspiring. So you might be able to pick off from me that like it, I found it inspiring. And I hope that that's something that, that really grows. That's where I bring my compost. So if you need help on expanding farmer's markets to neighborhoods that don't have access to fresh fruits and vegetables, you know, Eric Adams is really big on this too. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a really important initiative. I think low-income communities suffer from those types of fresh food 
deserts. And, you know, Union Square is, uh, look, it's a fancy, it's a fancy part of the city. And uh, there's like high end restaurants do their shopping there. Uh, And it's, it needs to be much more of this borough wide and citywide initiative. Farmers markets, we've taken a lot of steps to ensure that you could use supplemental food uh, vouchers at, at these types of locations. And I myself, my husband and I received during the pandemic, every parent of a public school child mm-hmm. received a few hundred dollars to in wooden coins to use at farmers markets. It was such a great initiative and it helps the farmers. I know some of my colleagues in the Senate who are from predominantly agricultural regions love the nexus between New York City and yeah. fresh food markets because that's helping their local economy grow. And of course, we need to make fresh fruits and vegetables more of the norm in lower income communities and around our public housing, just so that people live healthier lives and particularly uh, school kids. I look, my, my daughter's my 10 year old daughter, given the choice, she'll eat junk food every time or nine <laughs> times out of 10. So parents need those options so they can uh, teach better, better habits to their kids. Yeah. Again, if that's a place where I can help, let me know. I'd love to. And I wasn't sure if I could, if I should bring this up. It, this is the Northwest corner of Washington Square Park. You alluded to, it's always been, you know, your place where we walk through and it's like smoke, smoke. I'm very happy to hear that you'll help turn that in. That I believe will change significantly because it, it, that I don't see why that would be illegal. I mean, I know historically why. Now the North part of it between that and the arch, actually between that and there's a, um, a playground, there's now a lot of openly, whatever it is, it's like using needles. And I see the needles on the ground yeah. and people are just openly using it. And like on Reddit, people speculate that the cops are kind of annoyed at they're not enforcing as much as they normally would. I'm not sure, but you know, the needles get me, that's pretty serious. It is. And it's not like, I'm not saying like just send a cop in there and problem solved because it's, this is results, not from just like, I imagine it's deep roots. Yeah. I mean, these are individuals Many of them homeless. They don't have a real, you know, plan for rehabilitation. The social workers and the homeless outreach that visit them are often on a revolving door. So there's no trust built. Something that I that's been identified for me by the district attorney's office uh, as to why our homeless services programs don't work with chronically unhoused drug abusing individuals just because they don't recognize the person who comes to see them and are very suspicious. They don't want to go into our shelters often because the shelters themselves are dangerous. They'd rather stay out on the street. In some cases, that's a rational choice that they make. But we need to get these individuals into diversion programs so they can get off of their drug, find employment, and have, you know, real wraparound care and support. I think we owe it to them as fellow New Yorkers, but I agree with you. It is both sad and depressing and a little scary to take walks through that 
corner of the park, knowing that sometimes the police just look away and there aren't the appropriate city uh, services for that area. Why? I don't understand that DHS or other, you know, human services professionals don't put on a bright, you know, yellow vest and spend time there with these individuals and actually have a real effort to get them off the street and programs that can help them clean up. That, that should be a serious focus because we know where these problem spots are. And I think if these individuals were treated with some respect and some consistency and some like evidence-based programming that could help them get off of uh, the drug they're taking, it would be a positive development. But unfortunately, we don't see that kind of outreach on a consistent basis to these people. At least I don't, I'm not aware of it happening. And mostly what I hear and see are the problems rather than the a city response that's trying to fix the problems or at least attempt a fix. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear. I mean, I know that there's no easy solution. This is not like a New York issue only. This is a global issue. It is. And it's increased during the pandemic, of course. And, you know, the rates of homelessness have increased all across the country. You know, open and notorious drug use have increased all across the country. In many respects, New York City is better off than some big cities like Los Angeles and San Francisco. That said, we should be doing more. It's Look, living in Wash- around Washington Square Park uh, probably pales in comparison to some other neighborhoods uptown or around, you know, Penn Station uh, and Hell's Kitchen, where they've been dealing with uh, chronic homelessness and the fact that, you know, temporary shelters have been uh, created in hotels during the pandemic. And uh, there's a lot of concern, and I think it's legitimate around the lack of a plan by the city to address this growing problem, which leads to other issues, including some crime, uh, a sense of insecurity mm-hmm. by neighbors, and a feeling that things are spiraling out of control. And sure, the tabloids, the New York Post, you know, love to talk about de Blasio's, you know, failed efforts in this regard. But If our neighbors saw something more visible and representative of the city's outreach to homeless individuals and people who are on the street doing drugs, it'd be a very positive thing. If you like the show, I recommend acting, as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small, doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodek.com donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com donate. Yeah, you're, you mentioned... I mean, it was in passing, but I can, of having someone with a bright yellow outfit go in, that makes a lot more sense than sending someone in with a gun and, and authority. 
uh, I don't think anyone's there because they're like, this is what I've been looking for my whole life. This is my goal. I think and support, listening and understanding probably go a long way. I'm not an expert. I mean, I go through there a lot. So they kind of know me now because I'm the guy who comes through and picks up trash. So I think they kind of, they're like, okay, he's, he's cool. But it also means that they don't hide anything when I'm walking through. But yeah, they don't, no one seems aggressive. No one seems yeah. like they mean anyone harm, but that could be, I don't know. I don't know. Sometimes, sometimes you walk through there and it feels, you know, it's not a comforting feeling. Yeah, it's not. You know, yeah. To see someone shooting up in front of you or in front of your 10 year old. I mean, this is the lowest point of someone's life to be doing that in public or defecating or sick. You know, I mean, this is, this is really the most heart sickening thing you could really almost imagine for someone. Mm-hmm. And it happens in our public parks. So uh, we, we have to, we have to have a plan to address it. We can't, we cannot wish it away, but it needs to be compassionate and based on diversion, uh, not, you know, not throwing people behind bars because it just doesn't work. It's a revolving door. The police will tell you with the judges and unless someone is compelled to enter a program of drug rehabilitation, I think they're in a spiral that is almost impossible to escape from. And I think also, so that's the people with the needles. And there's also the community around, you know, the population dropped a bunch over the past years. People, I mean, this is a wealthy neighborhood and people have other homes and they have places to go. And as the population dropped, the, the percentage of local residents dropped. Now that's rising back up again. And I hope it rises up a lot more, but also the sense of community of, of people always being around. You know, the Jane Jacobs, what she described of just always people at different times of day, different people. And I hope to bring that back. It's, it's never gone. I mean, the village is, I live in the village, but also Manhattan is my home too. And I was, I've lived up in the Upper Satellite too. And I'd like to see more civic engagement. I don't know if, if elected officials make that happen, but that's something that I don't see, you know, I'd like to see more of, and I'd like to be, I don't know, maybe I can help with that too. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I think, again, the borough president's role in inculcating, you know, civic engagement and our neighbors is, is really a key one that happens through our community boards. And that's, those are, you know, our town halls, really, of our neighborhoods. And that's, I think, a place where anyone interested in a local issue, if it's park safety or, you know, development or neighborhood preservation or small business, you know, resuscitation should, should go to their local community board website and see when the next meeting is. And most of them are on Zoom now. So it's pretty easy to log on and check out how you can get engaged on a local level. That's, that's the building block of our, of our municipal democracies, our community boards. Yeah, I hope that picks up a lot more. And I'm, I really like doing the things when they organize those things and the build a block meetings. And It was Jane Jacobs' birthday yesterday, by the way. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't celebrate it. I'll have to find, I'll, I'll celebrate yeah. it day late. And I'll put it on my calendar for next year. You know, the environment, I, I, I talk about it a lot. And I'm curious, is the environment something that's important to you? I think it's fundamental to all of us. I don't think, I think we are, you know, one with the environment. It shapes everything we do. I grew up in a rural part of the country in South 
eastern West Virginia. So I was always connected to nature per se. And, you know, for me and my childhood, I was, you know, in the woods or out in a pasture. I was a naturally curious child. It's really all I had. We only had mm-hmm. three TV stations where I grew up. So I really didn't have a choice. But now that I'm in, you know, I wanted to move to a city probably as a reaction to that. But now I'm very interested in the natural environment, whether it's a red-tailed hawk perching on our windowsill on the 15th floor near, near the Washington Square, or finding, as I did a couple of years ago, an eastern uh, red bat in a tree bed that had flown into a window and had been injured. So I scooped it up with the help of our local community board district manager. We took it up to the wild bird fawn on Upper West Side. And they called me a few days later and allowed me to release it in Central Park. Or, you know, taking up causes around the environment on a policy level, such as banning PFOAs, one of these forever chemicals that caused great havoc in small towns where these chemical companies were located, such as Hoosick Falls, New York. And knowing that these chemicals are used in everyday products, such as pizza boxes and fast food packaging. So we banned them and those kinds of uses uh, through a bill that I wrote. So I think I'm always connected to the environment and I'm looking out of my window right now and I see the Hudson River Mm -hmm. and the Hudson River Park is really our backyard for so many villagers. And just knowing the history of that waterway and the battle over the chemical contamination, yet the fact that it is coming back. The whales appearing, yeah. It gives me so much hope that we can do more to protect to protect nature. I've been interested in uh, trying to crack down on the illegal ivory trade mm-hmm. in New York City, which had historically been the epicenter of you know, North American illegal ivory. So a few years ago, I had heard that Denver, Colorado had the first ivory crush in the United States. So I had my team write a letter to U.S. Fish and Wildlife to request that they have an ivory crush in Times Square in my Senate district. Mm -hmm. Lo and behold, Joshua, they wrote back and they said, what a splendid idea. We'd love to do it. Can you help us arrange it? So we helped them get the permits and we had the first ivory crush in New York City and they crushed three tons of ivory. And it was one of those moments where, you know, you think locally, and, but you're able to do something on a wider scale to save the African elephant. So I, I try to think about the environment, but it's hard not to, even when you're a New Yorker, because, you know, there's so much of it around us, even, even in this incredibly urban existence. We're, we're really fighting for every strand of grass <laughs> as as a New York City resident. So in some respects, in some respects, we, we can't take it for granted as, as I might have when I lived in rural West Virginia as a kid. You're reminding me that I had Robert Ballot of um, Dark Waters fame uh, as a guest and amazing uh, what he's done and, and what is left to do. We, we consulted with Ballot over Hoosick Falls and PFOA. 
so he was he was a great resource to us. We were examining some files by that company from Lucid Falls. He got involved tangentially in that in that case. Yeah, he's. I mean, as much as he's done, he's still just getting started with what he's what's coming next. Well, in his his original case uh, in that that movie took place in my home state, Parkersburg, yeah. West Virginia, at the Dupont Chemical Factory there. Now, based on what you described of your connection with nature, and, and the, I heard hope, and I heard you know back to childhood and connection, backyard. I invite you, and this is at your option, to think of something you could do personally. It's difficult when you're a politician not to think like, oh, here's a bill I can do. But personally, to act on those those feelings, that those memories, and it's not to fix all the world's problems. Uh, it's not to not for the rest of the world, although they may benefit from it. Uh, it could be big, it could be small. Uh, and if you do, if you go for it, then to share how it went. And usually most people pick something very short term, but something that you do with your own hands, something that you're not already doing and something that has a physical difference in the world. Yeah, I think that's a great suggestion. It would probably be, I think, centered around my kids and, you know, on a personal level, teaching them some sustainable activity. Like my mom taught me, you know, to always turn the lights off before we left. We waste so much energy in in our urban lives. Um, if I could pass a lesson on to to one of them or both of my kids, I think that'd be a, that'd be a remarkable thing. Or to share something with our whole family, some action. I, I'd love to think about that. Figure out something small, but which has a bigger effect if everyone did it. I wonder if we could make it two things. What, usually, what I say at this point is to make it a smart goal, to make it something very specific, smart, SMA, specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, and time bound. Because usually, when someone says I want to do something, it's much harder than. I'll do this for one week or this for a month or something like that. Yeah, I'd like to start, you know, to be honest, we are not the biggest composters in my my family. And it'd be really positive step for my children and my husband and me to start doing that. And speaking of Union Square Park, they've got, you know, a Mm -hmm. composting location there and we should be collecting our scraps and participating in that. We, we don't do it enough. So I'd like to regularize that uh, and make it a goal for my family. I have this weird thing that when you meet someone over a compost bin, as I do in Washington Square Park, and before that, I would go to Abington Square because they were getting it started there. And I wanted to make sure now it's, it's going. Well, I mean, the pandemic shifted things, but I, I believe it will be back. And when you meet someone over compost, it always goes well. That's funny. Like you'd see what the other's been eating for a while and you, you both have put it in the freezer for a while. Yeah. So a fun way to meet neighbors. Yeah. Would you be game to come back and share how that experience went? Sure. So after we record and before we hang up, would it be okay to put on the calendar a time to, to share how it went? Of course. Okay, cool. Yeah. And I would hope that listeners would get to hear something of it. Also, my co-op board. So hopefully soon we'll, we'll bring back the curbside composting. My co-op board is like, oh, it's going to bring vermin. And it's like the opposite, but they're resisting it. And once you do it, it's, it's fun. It's weirdly fun in my experience. It's also, uh, I can see that your trash collection fills up a lot more slowly, you know? So you just have, it creates more space. And that's something we're all striving for in our apartment. Yeah. Also, it, it makes it easier to keep the vermin out because you're separating the, edible, the stuff that's edible to them from the stuff that's not edible to them yeah. and you can contain it better. So they just haven't done it. Once you do it, you get it. 
we don't really have at this point in New York City, yes, co-ops and curbside are important. We don't really have widely distributed a good compost receptacle for New Yorkers. It's, I think it should it should be branded or I think there was one, but I don't think it really got off the ground. But I think that'd be something that the city should look into. I concur. I think, I mean, we pay enough to sanitation that, that we can take the food part out of that, the stuff that can go to farmers. I'm not sure exactly where it goes, but somewhere in the ground. Yeah. And certainly we should have composting in our public housing and, and city owned and or managed or controlled buildings. I would love to keep this conversation going and I hope to have you back a second time to, to maybe we can pick up there next time. Before we wrap up, is there anything I didn't think to ask that's worth bringing up or any message you want to leave uh, listeners with? Only that this is a remarkably challenging time, but there is so much light that is possible. Thank goodness to vaccine distribution and neighbors looking after each other, our frontline workers being there for us during this pandemic, our, our teachers, our physicians, our restaurant workers and grocery store workers. I think we're going to make it and come out much stronger. And we will at the same time address so many longstanding issues, many of which we spoke about this afternoon to make our city a better place to live and more democratic and representative of who we are as a people. Well, Senator, Borough President, Brad Hoyleman, thank you very much. So nice to see you. Thank you so much. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.